If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. We are walking through the history of the people of Israel that were being led by Nehemiah. And they have a task. And the task is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to reestablish and repair the gates of the city. And what a blessing it is so far. We have looked at the book of Ezra, which was the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the people of Israel. They had been in captivity for 70 years. They were in captivity because they had sinned against God and God had brought judgment upon them and the Babylonians came in and after laying siege to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., they were carried away captive back to Babylon. There were other peoples from other nations brought to the city of Jerusalem to live and the surrounding area was inhabited by these foreign nations. But you must remember that The land of Israel is just that. It is the land that God promised to the people of Israel. And although they were the actual ones who should have been there, others were there and they had been removed because of their sin. And this should, just in passing, this should give us great warning in our lives and in our churches and in our homes. Give us great warning not to sin against God. We live in a day where many people will say to us that to err is human. And that is true. But often we lean upon the crutch of our inherent sinful nature. All too often as a justification for sin. This is never permissible in the scriptures. And this is not the way in which you will thrive and enjoy your Christian life. If you and I persist on in unrepentant sin, my friends, listen, God will bring judgment. He will bring His chastisement into our lives, much as He did His own people, the people of Israel, when they were carried away for 70 years as captives of the Babylonian Empire. Well, 70 years passed and they were able to come back to Jerusalem. They were able, through the leadership of Ezra and others, Zerubbabel, to rebuild the temple and reestablish it there. But we find that when we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah the cupbearer to the king of Persia, the Persian empire had now arisen to the world power and had defeated the Babylonians. And Nehemiah discovers that although the temple has been rebuilt and although things had been uh, repaired to a certain point, the walls of the city were still broken up and fallen down and the gates of the city were burned with fire. And as we see in chapter 1, I turn back there for just a moment, in verse 3, when he asked some visitors from Jerusalem, How goes it back home in Jerusalem and with the people of God? And they said in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Well, this caused Nehemiah to be greatly concerned and greatly troubled. He says in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And last week we found out that that was four months. This man prayed and fasted and thought about what could be done. In chapter 2, we found that the strategy and the plan of God was beginning to show itself through the leadership of Nehemiah. And although he was a praying man, we found that he persisted in prayer. He persevered in prayer. We found that this man was committed to a God-honoring passion with his life. And I encouraged you and I encouraged myself last Sunday that we would both be people of persevering prayer and that we would be people that are committed to a God-honoring passion with our lives. When we come to chapter 3, we come to one of the most practical chapters in the book. What I mean by practical is there's not a lot of flowing storyline. There's not a lot of explicit commandments that are to be heeded. But rather we find this list of people and groups of people that are going to carry on the work of rebuilding the walls. And uh, we would be tempted, if I were reading this passage at home in my daily time in the Word of God, I might and you might be tempted to just kind of say, this looks like one of those chapters where so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so I should therefore just skip over it and go to the end. But if we do that, we will be making a mistake. Because the Bible says that all of the Word of God is profitable and beneficial to us. Now, sometimes it's more difficult to see, at times, the benefit of passages and chapters like this. But I hope this morning that we can see that even in this kind of passage, there is much to be gleaned for our lives today. And so rather than reading the entire chapter, which does very much read like the opening verses, if you'll look there in chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests. So here's a man and the group, the other priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananiel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. And on and on and on it goes. So let us, as we look at this chapter, and I hope you will go home and read it, even though you may not be able to pronounce the names as good as you would like to. I hope you'll go home and just read and take notes and think over what we are going to learn here today. Before we do, let's pray together. Our God and our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that today you would give us today our daily bread. And that truly your word, O oh God, would be food for our souls. As you provide the physical food as well. 
We pray, O God, that you would forgive us of our trespasses and sins and debts that are piling up every day through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Forgive us as we forgive others. And lead us, O God, not into temptation this day, but deliver us, your people, from evil, from Satan and demon spirits that war against our soul, from the nature of sin and the impulses of our flesh, from the world around us with their vain philosophies of life and their empty pursuits of pleasure and power and prestige, searching and seeking and groping for the things that will not truly satisfy. Deliver us from all such passions of life. Deliver us from evil. For it is your kingdom and your power and your glory that we seek. Help us today by the aid of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As you see in the title, fulfilling the task is the title. Fulfilling the task. We're going to see today there is one clear objective that is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. To repair and reestablish the gates of the city. But also to borrow from my pastor brother, Alistair Begg, principles for doing God's work, God's way is the subtitle. And I cannot resist using it. The phrase that I lift from him is doing God's work. God's way. And we just see this. Many people, and I could have approached the book this way, look into the book of Nehemiah to find a picture of leadership and the principles of leadership for the church and for your lives and homes and corporations or wherever. And you can look at it that way and we will point some things out in way of leadership. But I want you to see a little bit of a broader stroke, a broader scheme as we look at these verses together. So I'm asking the question this morning very simply, what is it going to take to accomplish the task? Fulfilling the task, principles for doing God's work, God's way. Now, we could, many people could assume that rebuilding the walls is not a very spiritual task. But you have to remember that the rebuilding of the walls is not the most crucial aspect of their task. But what is the purpose of the walls? What is the purpose of the temple? What is the purpose of the gates? That is what makes it spiritual. That is what makes it important. Namely this, that these people are the people of God. That this city is the city where God has made his name to dwell. And the temple is a representative place on earth that represents the very throne of God in heaven. And as such, it should not be a place that is in shambles. As such, it should not be a place that is in disorganization. And it should not be a place that is in chaos and shame. But rather, it should be a place that reflects the very God who has made his name and his people to dwell there. Does that make sense? So rebuilding the walls is not just look at these walls. Aren't these nice walls? But it is we rebuild the walls so that our people, the people of God, are not in dishonor and in shame. And therefore dishonoring and bringing shame upon the God of heaven. And we would be tempted maybe to say that Nehemiah and the people of Israel here have more of a self-centered motive than what I'm wanting to give them credit for. 
to say, well, certainly the people of Israel would want the walls of the city to be rebuilt. There's nothing inherently God word about that kind of passion. Well, I would point you just specifically to a passage that we find in chapter 2. If you look at verse, in chapter 2, if you look at verse 8, at the latter part of verse 8, you'll find these words. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So here we have the first indication that this is a Godward thing. Then, as we move on, he comes over into the people, to the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And he begins to assess the situation. And he begins to evaluate what is going to be needed to accomplish the task. And if you'll notice in verse 11, verse 12 rather, He says, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one, and here it is, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. What my God had put into my heart to do. So this task that that we're going to see begin to be fulfilled in chapter 3 is a task that comes from God. It wasn't a created task from the mind of Nehemiah or any other person on earth. But it comes from the heart of God to the people of God. And what we're going to learn today, these principles for doing God's work, God's way, simply tell us that it is from God to us to do the mission, the task that He has given to His church today. And it is our task to do. It is God's work And therefore it is to be done in God's way, but it is to be done by God's people, you and I. So, what is it going to take to accomplish the task? Four principles to accomplish God's work in God's way. Number one, the first principle is the principle of organization. Organization. As we look at this task and we see what it was like, if you ever built, if, you, if you've ever been around carpentry work or building of a home or a church or a building, you'll know that even today it is a difficult task. And in some cases we look at the structures that are being built, the skyscrapers, for example, in some of the cities, and we look at that and we say, that is a monumental task. Even with all of our modern day technologies, it is a monumental and a difficult task to build one of those things. But consider before we had all of the modern day technologies available at our disposal, the people of Israel back in this day rebuilding the walls out of the rubble that was laying around everywhere. The grass had began to grow, and in many ways, it had beautified the rubble. <laughs> People had began to plant flowers on the, on the rubble site. And so, in order to do and to fulfill the task using the principles in the Word of God, we must understand that one of God's principles is nothing short, nothing shy of the principle of organization. In order to accomplish the work of the ministry that God has given us as He gave to them in in their day, we must apply the principle of organization. 
If you'll notice, as I mentioned earlier, scattered throughout this chapter, we're given the record of individual names. But certainly we must realize and recognize that for every name that has been given, there are many, many, many others that were not mentioned. And so we see through the leadership of Nehemiah, the organization of the people to accomplish the task. Organization is very important to a church today. Organization is very important to your own life and to your home. Organization is important at your job. And it is no less a principle in the church of God today. The people were organized into small groups. I read to you just a sampling of how if you go on and read the verses, it goes on and on throughout the chapter, naming a person and the group that was working under that person, as it were, or with that individual that is named to accomplish specific responsibilities. There were about 40 sections of the wall that was going to be rebuilt. And as he begins to take us through the chapter, he moves around Jerusalem in a counterclockwise fashion, bringing us back to where we started at the beginning. And this is significant for us today because in order to do something, in order to do something that has a lasting effect, often we neglect what we would consider maybe to be a natural philosophy or a natural way of thinking about doing something employing the very principle of organization. But my friends, I have witnessed in my own life, and I'm sure you have as well, and at my work and in the church, that one of the major problems is often very simply the lack of organization. Charles Fincham, from his commentary on Nehemiah, writes this, quote, Nehemiah was an excellent organizer. To divide up all this work and to ensure that the work was carried about properly. And so certainly we can say without hesitation that organization is necessary for any operation. Let me give you a couple things, three things about it that is helpful. Number one, organization develops efficiency. Organization develops efficiency. If you have in your home or you men have a workshop or a garage, how long does it take you to do uh, the tasks that you would like to do? Say you're fixing the lawnmower or you're building a shed and you come to your toolbox or your garage or your building and, and it is totally unorganized. It hinders efficiency. <laughs> The rate at which you can accomplish the task is often directly tied to organization. Where is the wrench? Where is the hammer? Where is the level? It's somewhere. I know I have it in the house, in the building, in the box. I can't find it. Whereas if it was organized, my efficiency would improve. You walk into a person who is a business type person and you go in and their desk is completely covered with stuff. It's going to hinder their efficiencies. Now, some people are specifically wired to work in more chaotic climates than others. But for the most part, 
It is a true statement that organization develops efficiency. People are not working on the same thing unknowingly, nor are they working on something prematurely because of organization develops efficiency. How efficient would it be if one group of people were gathering some of the rubble to take to this site and work on it? And the other people, maybe on the other side, were gathering the rubble on this side and transporting it to this other site to rebuild the wall there. They're both working with the same, in the same geographical location, but they're not knowing that they're working in the same geographical location and they're dispersing the materials away from each other so that the efficiency of the overall job is hindered. Nor are they prematurely working on something that is really better organized to be worked on later on. (laughs) How many of you men have cut a board, you know, maybe prematurely only to discover that after you really got to that point in the project, you had miscalculated the cut. And now you've got a board that will not fit. So organization develops efficiency. Secondly, organization develops unity. It develops unity. Unity is essential and critical, so much so that we're going to talk about it as one of the main points. But at this point, suffice it to say that organization, the principle of organization, develops unity in the task at hand. People all understand what the objective is. And organization helps to develop that unity. Thirdly, organization develops synergy. Not only efficiency and unity, but synergy. Synergy is not the energy of one person, but the combined energies of several people, thereby creating momentum in the task at hand. People know how to be involved corporately and collectively. Therefore, the momentum of the task is increased in a way that would not take place if there was disorganization among the people. And so these people, as we're going to discover, they were able to rebuild this wall in their day and with what they had relatively quick, relatively fast. That's number one, the principle of organization. Second principle is this, the principle of cooperation. And I would like to spend longer here, and I may do so, the principle of cooperation. Cooperation. It takes everyone doing their part. It takes everyone doing their part. The task of rebuilding the wall, and listen, the task to the mission of the church today takes organization and it takes cooperation It is one of those things that we've often heard said, and I don't think we allow to sink in, namely that 20% of the people often, if not always, do 80% of the work. But this is not the case that we see in chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 3, we see that everyone has a task. Everyone has a responsibility, and the task is only completed through the principle of cooperation by everyone taking up the task at hand. These 40 sections of wall that were to be built were to be built through the work of cooperation. But if you notice in verse 5, 
in verse 5 of chapter 3, we have an example of those who do not want to work in cooperation with their leaders and with other people. There are just those that seem to be in every group that do not want to cooperate with the leadership that God has given them, nor do they want to work with the rest of the group. It says in verse 5, And next to them the Decoahites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And so we can see here an example of those who were not willing to cooperate with others. They were, in essence, doing their own thing. They were taking upon themselves the philosophy and the the kind of uh, disposition where they look to themselves and at themselves outside of the large group, outside of the unifying purpose of the group, and so they refused to do that. Now we could uh, we could surmise as to what the reason would be. It could be because they were just lazy; they felt they were too good to do that kind of work. Or it could actually be, as we're going to see, there is opposition to this work. We've noticed it all along, but in next sermon we'll get into it in chapter four. But there is reason to believe that they. One of the reasons could be that they had kind of an allegiance with the opposition to this work, and so they would not stoop. To do it. Now, this brings up a great concern for me as a pastor and as a Christian, rather, even to look into the condition of the modern day church, specifically the modern day notion of individualism. The modern day notion of individualism does not work in the context of Christianity. We breathe the air today of individualism. It is The philosophy and the disposition of almost every person in our country today. And you and I have been breathing this air our entire lives. But what we need to understand this morning is this. Individualism does not work in the context of Christianity. Because Christianity is not about your individual separated from everyone else relationship to God. We often hear it trumpeted about I have a personal relationship with God. And that may be true. But that reality nonetheless does not take away from the the individual Christian is always in context with other believers. Always. The attitude and the disposition that is taught in Christianity is not self-serving, but God-serving and others-minded. Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most wonderful chapters to read on that issue. We are part of the whole. We are saved into a community. Your personal relationship with Christ is directly connected to the church. There is no biblical concept, nor was there historically a concept until the last few decades, I might give you a hundred years at most. But before that time period, since Jesus and his apostles and the early church, there was never this concept. Of me, myself, and I, and my relationship with God. This is, this is modern. This is a modern notion. 
your personal relationship with God in the Scripture and with Christ is directly connected to the church. And that can only be lived out in obedience to Christ in the context of a local church. You and I cannot, simply cannot, it is impossible to obey the commands of God outside of a local church. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. You cannot fulfill the commandments in the New Testament without being part of a local church. I would love to talk a long time about this, but I will give you a couple of biblical scriptures and we'll move on. For example, let me give you three examples that the New Testament uses to drive home this point, okay? Paul gives three pictures of the Christian within the context of the church. And the way he does this is through the analogy of a body and of a building and of a family. Okay, a body, a building, and a family. In Romans chapter 12, if you want to turn, you can. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. If not, I will read them to you if you listen. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 4 to 6. This is what he says. For as in, and here it is, one body. So he's using an analogy. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. So you have, we are individuals in God's sight. We do have a personal relationship with God, or you may. But that is in the context of the whole. Just like your body. (laughs) If I cut off your pinky, threw it on the ground, would you say that's you? No. Because you are you as a whole. And you have individual members, fingers, toes, hands, arms, legs, eyes, ears, that make up the whole body. And Paul says that we're like a body that's made up of many members. Each one is necessary and vital and important and must cooperate in order to be the whole. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find the analogy of a building or Specifically, the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple? And the word you in the Greek is plural. It's plural. Do you not know that you... So Paul's writing to a local church in Corinth. And he says, do you not know that you, all of you, are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? In Ephesians chapter 2... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 22. Ephesians 2, 14 to 22. He says this. He, he uses both analogies in this text. For he himself is our peace, that is Jesus, who has made us both one, both one, so you have the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and here it is, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So here he uses the analogy of creating a new man. You have two, Jew and Gentile, and he says, 
He's making one. That he might create in himself, in Christ, one new man in the place of two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, the Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, and here it is, I said the family analogy, here it is. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So we're common citizens in the kingdom of God with the saints. And he gives another analogy. And this is the one of the household. And members of the household of God. So you have a building. You have a body. You have a household. You have citizens. All of these analogies say that to be in Christ is to be connected to the body. To be connected to the family. To be citizens in a larger group. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1, 22, 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's two different words for love. Philadelphia and agape. So listen to the way this, this, this reads. Because the latter part is what gives rise to the first part. And I didn't read it. The latter part says this. Since, okay, since this has happened, do this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word. Now this would take a long time for me to really expound upon it. But, but let me say this. This is a phenomenal text that teaches that you are born again, since you have been born again, into what? First, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Then, agape, sacrificial love of Christ. So, the way that it reads is, since you have been born again, you've been born again into a family. Now love one another earnestly. See what he's saying? You've been born into this communion with brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister. Now, sacrificially love one another in this way. So the second principle is that of cooperation. Number three. The third principle is the principle of unification. Unification. They were unified firstly because of who they were. They were all the true Israelites. They were all the true Israelites. Secondly, they were, they were unified because of whose they were. These people were God's covenant people. God's chosen covenant people. They were true Israelites. They were the ones who were given the promise of the land. The people that were brought in there, it was not their land. It was the true Israelites' land, and they knew it. And we're going to see, as he says to them, Sanballat and Tobiah, he says, you know, you don't have anything to do with this project. Because they were not true Israelites. They did not have the promise from God of the land. So whose they were and who they were. And thirdly, they were unified because of the purpose. 
of their task, namely to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And let me say something about unification. Unification is lived out in the midst of diversity. Just like in the last principle, we work as individuals in cooperation. You are an individual, but you're into, listen, <laughs> I got to go back and say this about that. Individual, individual identity in Christ is always connected to the whole. You understand? In other words, you can't find your personal identity as a Christian apart from the group. <laughs> and everything in the world today says your, your identity is just you, uniquely you. But you can't find your unique you outside of the group. Because God has saved you to a family. He has placed you as a block in a building. He has made you a, a member of the body. My finger laying on the ground is of no use. But you put it on my hand and attach it with whatever attaches it to it. It's, it's functional, you see? You, the eye, what good is the eye if it's not attached to the brain? It's no good. So I'm an eye, look at me. But without being attached to the brain and the rest of the body, the eye serves no function at all. So we can tout about how I'm a Christian, you know, and I don't have to go to church and I don't have to be connected to anybody. It's me and Jesus. You'll never find that concept in the Bible. And you will never thrive as an individual Christian apart from the body of Christ. Now, go back to unification. In unification, is somewhat similar. There is both diversity and unity. See, one of the great misconceptions is that in order for the church to be efficient and fulfill its task, there must be uniformity. But that is not true. God doesn't, make, doesn't take the cookie-cutter approach so that every cookie turns out exactly the same. But God takes the diversity of the body... That, and, and he makes the whole successful. So, like cooperation, unification thrives not in uniformity, but in diversity. So, how are we unified? Whose we are, who we are, and what we're here to do. That's what unifies us. There is diversity as pertaining to the individual efforts and particular areas of ministry. Yet there is unity as pertaining to the overarching goal. There is diversity as pertaining to individual efforts and particular areas of ministry. And yet there is unity as pertaining to the overarching goal. I am preaching today. You are fulfilling other roles, prayer, gifts of helps and administration, and whatever that might be. We're all fulfilling the overarching goal of making disciples who make disciples of all nations of the world. So what do we need to be unified and apply the principle of unification? We must always keep the main purpose in view and not only we not only keep it in view, but keep it in focus. There's a difference between looking at something and focusing on something. 
We must always keep the main purpose in view and in focus as we work out our individual ministries. So often in the church, what kills the success of that church in a biblical sense is not because people aren't working, but because people have lost sight of the overarching purpose. And so you have people that are simply living out their particular area of ministry as the ultimate goal, and it's only a means to an end. See what I'm saying? So if you came up to one of the builders on the wall and you said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're building this nice shiny wall. The difference would be the correct way, the correct response would be we're working together to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And my individual task is not the main thing, but my individual task is seen in the context of the overarching purpose of the group. So what was their individual purpose? Very simple. Get your section of the wall over to the next group. That's what they were supposed to be doing. They had individuals working on sections that was bigger, listen to this, than their individual task. They have individuals working on sections of something that was bigger than their individual project. If your project gets beyond, becomes bigger in your affections, in your mind, in your heart, than the overarching project, then you've lost sight. You've lost sight. Unity comes when we keep it in sight and in focus. Imagine a football player. You come to a group of football players, right? Team sport. And you, gotta, you come to them and you start asking them one by one, what is, your, what is your goal? What is your task? What is your objective here? And every one of them begins to say, well, my, our, our goal is to get the football down the field and cross the line so that we can score. And you come to one guy and he says, you say, well, what is your task? What is your goal? What is your purpose? And he says, well, I'm trying not to get my cleats dirty. Is that going to work? So everybody else is working to get the football to the finish line, but this guy's trying to keep his shoes clean. He's not going to help the overall overarching purpose. Or take a, mu- a musical band. If you have a pianist that starts off playing Amazing Grace and the rest of the instrumentalists are, are, are playing How Firm a Foundation, you've got two people that are doing individual tasks, but because they're not unified in that task, you get chaos, disorder, and failure. We must have unification in the overarching purpose of the church. And I'm going to give it to you in a sentence. The biblical purpose of the church is to evangelize the lost world with the good news of Jesus Christ and to disciple the converted, the changed. That is our job. That is our task. And whatever we do, we must keep that task in view and we must keep that task in focus. Not only in the overarching purpose, but also there's another thing that unifies the church, namely ultimate truth ultimate truth. People today who see biblical doctrines as being what has divided the church are wrong. That is not true. What unifies the church is her understanding and interpretation of biblical doctrines. Otherwise, you will have confusion and chaos and failure. One of the easy ways that I thought of to help us to understand what is ultimate truth in the church 
is to go back to the 16th century Reformation and consider for just a moment what became known and is known today as the five solas of the Reformation. Many of you may know these. The first one, and the one I think that surrounds and out of which grows every one of them, is the phrase sola scriptura. You know what that means? It means it's Latin for Scripture alone. Scripture alone. It is the Word of God alone that unifies the church. And it is out of the Word of God that all of the other solas come. Not only Scripture alone, but sola gratia, or grace alone. You are saved not by works, but by grace alone. It is the work of God not only the word alone and grace alone, but faith alone. Sola fida, faith alone. Sola Christos or Christ alone. The exclusivity of Christ is what unifies us in a church. And the final sola, sola Deo Gloria, the Latin for God's glory alone. And those five statements help to express in a concise way ultimate biblical truth that must unify the local church. There is no other way but Christ. There is no other means but grace. There is no other way but through faith. And there is no other ultimate goal but God's glory alone. And number four. The fourth principle is namely this, the principle of determination. If you start a task, it's easy to start. It's not so easy to finish. It's so easy to start. I can't tell you the the number of projects I've started and things I've started only to never follow through. And as we're going to see next week from chapter 4, They were faced with opposition just like we will be. And I wrote down three things concerning this principle of determination and we close. Number one, the task at hand takes commitment. It's not easy to love other people that are not like you. For heaven's sake, they're not like you. (laughs) They don't like the things you like. They don't look the way you do. They don't think always the way you do. The task of Reaching the world with the gospel of Christ and discipling those who are converted takes commitment. We have to be committed to it. Because the days are going to get difficult and challenging and hard. And opposition will come. Secondly, the task takes hard work. We often see Christian service as some kind of glorious thing. When often it is dirty and hard And emotionally trying and taxing and difficult. The serving of the Lord may include the washing of a disciple's feet. It may be sitting in an obscure place where no one else will ever know what you've done. It's hard work. It takes commitment. And thirdly, it takes perseverance. To be committed to something means you must be willing to persevere through difficult times. Paul writes in Galatians 6 verses 7 to 10, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. What are you sowing today? That's what you're going to get back. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And here it is. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith, the family. And I close with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you today that you have trusted, entrusted to us such a monumental task not to build a physical structure, but to work with you, the God of heaven, to build and expand your kingdom on earth. And we do that in direct connectivity to the local church in which you plant us and place us so that we may fulfill an individual function and role and responsibility so that we would work and repair our section of the wall. God, I pray that you would forgive us where we have neglected and left our tools laying over on the shelf and went and played while others labored in the heat of the day. Forgive us for that. And help us, O oh God, your church, to have the desire. And God, give us the commitment, give us the perseverance, and give us the willingness to labor to do our part. To raise up the wall of the church of Jesus Christ in our day. And at the end, hand off the mantle to other faithful men and women and hear the, the words from your mouth. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Help us to be faithful, O oh God. Give us strength and unity. Help us to organize ourselves for your glory and for your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.